You're listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast, illuminating the unheard stories of today's top leaders in impact with your host, Gino Borges. Thanks for joining us today on the Poetry of Impact podcast. Today, we'll hear from Hedda Paulson Mahler, founder and CEO of Time, an advocacy, advisory, and education provider focused on impact investing based in Luxembourg. This episode comes in conjunction with our partnership with Tonic, a global community of asset owners seeking deeper positive net impact across the spectrum of capital. Hedda opens the conversation by sharing her ancestral history in forestry and how forest stewardship is an art of learning through listening and feeling. She talks about trudging forward, knowing the mistakes in forestry may not be apparent for decades to come. Hedda is so articulate, illuminating the tension between impact and philanthropy and all the in-between. She sees frictions within the space and has a deep desire to work towards uniting the circles of those seeking positive change in the world. She encourages us to explore our own inhibitions and look for synergy with others so that our collective energy can guide us forward rather than remain in stagnancy. So drop in and enjoy the openness and honesty of this conversation with Hedda. Hi, Hedda. Great to have you here today. Hi, Gino. Where are you calling in from? Calling in from Luxembourg. Luxembourg. Great. And well, you're our first caller from Luxembourg. (laughs) That's probably not a surprise, but for those who don't know where Luxembourg is, where is it? Right. Because if you ask people where Luxembourg is, is you get a lot of bizarre answers. Most people think it's just somewhere in Germany, a part of Germany. They usually mix it up with Liechtenstein, also another small country in Europe. But it's really in this kind of, I say, the navel of Europe between Belgium, Germany, and France. There's a tiny country called Luxembourg, and it's a really beautiful place. Some people, I think, just pass by for uh, banking or gas. And if you don't stop to really see how incredibly beautiful it is, you're missing something. It's a special place. Yeah. What is it that makes it beautiful? Well, there's so much history here. You're going to see everything from castles to rolling forests with hills. It's very clean. People take pride in the beauty of the country. There's an incredible mix of nationalities, languages, people coming from all over the world. So it's probably the most international place I've ever lived in, and I've lived in a lot of countries. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned forest, and that was one of, I remember in previous conversations with you, that's something that stuck out. Haven't met a lot of people in the impact space that have that family background, have had, obviously have a fair amount of people that are involved in environmental advocacy, climate investing, impact investing, and just, you know, sort of the green movement in general, but no one with a, like a deep lineage in forestry. Can you take us a little back to that story of your family kind of evolved and started, and then how has it carried on to future generations, for instance, yourself? And now I understand that you have actually been involved in taking part of the helm in terms of how to move the generation forward. And just curious about on how it's kind of all unfolded. Sure. I think not a lot of people know forest owners. Very few people own forest. I think <laughs> most, parts, most parts of the world, it's owned by church or government or state. 
So it's probably not unusual to not know a lot of forest owners, although I find more and more people are, are taking such interest in forestry with climate change and carbon capture. And, and I'll tell you another reason some people buy forests is because they love to hunt. That's actually a driver. But in my case, forestry has been in the family for many generations, and that's a Swedish family. It's in an area close to the Norwegian border, very traditional Swedish trees, fir and pine and birch. And, you know, we also had a pulp and paper factory that was associated, which is kind of natural to get the whole value chain. But we sold that many years ago, and now it's primarily forestry as well as a national park. The first Nobel Prize winner in literature that was a woman was named Selma Lagerlöf, and she wrote this beautiful story called Gösta Berling's Saga, which took place at our family estate, a place called Rotnerus. And my great-grandfather built a park around it with Scandinavian sculptures. And people come from all over the world to see this traditional home that's associated with Selma Lagerlöf's Nobel Prize-winning literature. So there's heritage there, there's a national park, and there's these beautiful forests and lakes all around. Wow. So what role is the family playing in it today? Like, I mean, what kind of stewardship's involved in the current ownership? So the forest is managed. We actually had a split in our family where one part of the family took one section of the forest and, and I took over the other. And it's been a humbling learning process because obviously it's a lifetime of expertise to understand forestry. And so I'm very reliant on people, local people on the ground who help me manage the forest. But in terms of stewardship, I have absolutely no intentions of doing anything. I don't consider it a business. You know, if somebody asked me financially what I do with forests, it's, you know, you would call it capital preservation, right? It just means that I, I manage the forest as sustainably as possible, try to learn from the process regarding biodiversity and the lifetime of a tree and when trees get damaged by fires, or luckily we don't have too much of that, but it does happen even in Sweden, or winter storms, and you know, snow can land quite heavily on trees and start destroying them quite easily. And then we have insects, which is probably our number one nemesis. So I have to learn about this, spend my summers really in the forest, understanding the biodiversity element, the animals, the insects, the people who can explain to me which trees flourish, which ones struggle, how you have to protect them, how many trees to plant in an area, which trees to leave, etc. So stewardship requires learning a entirely new science and art, listening a lot to the people who have expertise, and humbly trudging forward with the understanding that you don't make quick mistakes in forestry, and so your errors actually will take probably decades before they become noticeable. So it's very different than the fast-paced moving business and finance life that I lead on the other side of the equation. Yeah, it's a little opposed to the venture model of hurry up and break things, right? <laughs> Which is actually my background. So I think managing trees has been a fantastic process for me to slow down, to you know not break things, but really learn by listening and feeling. Have you discovered through being in touch with forestry that, you know, my experience with nature is that every time I go into nature and engage it for any period of time, I come back and 
feel sort of this ecological wonder around me. So there's two things I notice. One is kind of this interdependence, both materially and spiritually, with wildness and wild spaces, like you're talking about. And then two is I also recognize to some extent how it informs my day-to-day when I'm actually not in the forest, but more in the front country. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences actually being in there in terms of what happens when you're in the woods and then also then take it out? How does it inform how you're working these days and being in the world? Good questions, especially because I don't think I've ever spoken these words before, but I, when I talked about listening and feeling, it's linked to the fact that when I walk through forests, I feel like I'm in conversation. I feel like I'm getting input and insight. There's a incredible connection with trees, and I can't figure out how much it might be something that has come through these generations of my family being in this space. Like some people feel connected to water or mountains or, or what have you. I feel very close and safe with trees. Those are the only words I can find here because it's not something, again, that I've communicated other than saying that this is a very peaceful place for me. And I find it extremely powerful to be there. Regarding your second question, how does it inform the rest of my life? I'm sure that, you know, my personality, I'm very intense, very driven. I've moved moved so fast through most of my life. And I'm sure they're part of this part of my life, which is slowing down, really contemplating, being thoughtful. And I believe they're part of that journey as well. So I've never been accused of moving fast in my life. So maybe Hedda, you can actually give us some color on what moving fast through life looks like in terms of your world. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody who knows me would be like, wow, that's Hedda talking very slowly and deliberately. So moving fast would entail speeding through life. I've lived in 10 countries. I have gone through multiple degrees, lots of jobs. If you looked at my CV, it's four pages of just pretty much anything and everything and everywhere. If you look at the number of board positions I have now or the engagements or projects, you'd probably be like, that's just not okay for one person. But it it has been okay for me. It's been who I am and what I've done. I'm extremely passionate about whatever I do. And I'm so intensely excited to learn new things and be challenged and to lean in. So I tend to move fast and furiously through pretty much everything. So this is a very new phase of my life where I am slowing down. And I, I do see that there it dovetails with my, my movement into forestry. Yeah, I bet. So I'm interested in during those moments that you have actually paused from speediness and slowed down, even if momentarily. Have you ever reflected on what the opportunity cost of speed might be for your own self and for the work you're doing? Um, it allowed you to achieve a certain amount, like you mentioned, the four-page curriculum vita. But on the other side of the, you know, kind of the opposite side of achievement is a potential opportunity cost. And I always like to explore this with people that at least have had moments of slowing down and to see like, I mean, at what cost did potentially that come with? If any, I'm not saying it did, but I mean, just to reflect on the potentiality of whether one's moving slow, like I can think of the opportunity costs in my life, uh, potential things that I overlooked or missed as a result of choosing my speed 
as a result of choosing your speed or your speed choosing you, I mean, what might have been missed or overlooked? You, you know. Yes, I'm going to hold the speed of, yeah, catching me as a, accountable. That's that's a much better way to put it. <laughs> but you know, I have to admit that it's not about opportunity cost because that calculation is a whole other chapter. But the actual cost of moving that fast is missing so much. I've hit walls many times. I mean, you don't move as fast as I've done pivoting, changing, trying new things and being in like an entrepreneur, early stage investor, trying new places, new countries, new challenges without just constantly screwing up. I mean, my balance sheet is is full on the the liability side to balance out the four page CV. So, yeah, no, I've had so many humbling moments and they're part of my growth and rather than I've not been much of an evolution type of person, I've really been a revolution. So I found myself at dead ends in my professional decisions and even personal decisions where I'm realized I didn't stop because I don't know how to give up. I don't know how to back off. I always want to fix things. I want to make things work. I figure with all the good intentions in the world that I'll put behind any investment or choice or or idea that I have, it always comes at a cost, you know, always. And again, hitting those walls or having those types of revolution moments where I've had to just, you know, throw it all away and start from scratch has been very much part of my learning journey and one that I don't feel I have to repeat again. Do you think in some ways you know, a lot of what you're talking about now is, you know, be on some kind of path and uh, reflection. Do you think that's a necessary equivalent for being in the impact space? Or can one merely be in the impact space from a cognitive construct and industrialized, secularized, like this is the way business is working in the world of finance now. And, you know, there doesn't have to be a reflective capacity. And, you know, like, as you know, there's some people that are very purist about uh, the impact space. There's others that are trying to mainstream it. And I mean, we'll talk about that because I know you're involved in those efforts. What are you seeing? How are you feeling about how this matrix self-reflection, mainstreaming impact, how it all kind of plays out, even within the impact space and then the larger kind of non-impact space and trying to move it up into that realm as well? So I think I'll reflect a little bit on listening to some of your other interviews with people that I I know quite well, but learned so much about through your interviews, realizing that everybody's gone through these convoluted paths of moral and spiritual and psychological challenges that bring them to impact. And I think there's so many different routes in. So no, I don't think you have to go through my kind of crash and burn model, but I do meet several people that have come from a similar journey as mine. And I certainly find them like-minded souls, probably the same types of scars and the same intentions to try to do things better and differently. But then there's lots of people who found much more natural or comfortable onboarding ramps in. And then once you're in, you know, people express impact through so many different value-based approaches to things. I mean, I meet whether philanthropists or impact investors who are passionate about fitness or crystals or poverty or animal rights. And you're never going to get a group like this together through the same journeys. They're coming at it from so many different directions. 
one takeaway from listening to these interviews and, and contemplating that the kind of path into impact is that I thought I was a bit of a an outsider or kind of unusual. And I'm realizing listening to the pain points of what a lot of people have discussed that it I'm no longer an outsider because now the outsiders are all in our own pool and bucket of people. So we can't really claim to be niche or peripheral because there's many of us there. But how does that evolve into, do you see hard lines being drawn in, in the impact space between those that want to keep it tight? I mean, perhaps I'm using the wrong verbs here, but keep it tidied up and pure because there is, a, my impression is, is that when you move from what the impact space is trying to do now to mainstreaming, which, which I know you're involved in, that there's a certain amount of dilution, or at least that's the accusation of the move toward mainstreaming, you know, the impact space. How are you particularly navigating that dialectic between the reality is that everybody's coming into space at different maturation points and how do we make this all work and how are you bringing these different disparate communities together to try to move things, you know, upstream? I spent so much time trying to figure out why people with similar values or visions for the world would spend so much time pointing fingers and criticizing or sometimes even demeaning others in the same sector when we have such bigger battles to work on. So I think I've noticed that already, guys, I started in the impact investing community and then I moved into the venture philanthropy community because I wanted to learn more about how to assess impact. And I thought that the, you know, the really the foundations and the philanthropists who'd been doing this for a long time would teach me that. And being there, I found this tension between philanthropy and impact investing that I, I didn't understand because I was like, wait a second, we all have the same purpose and we're all trying to achieve the same things, although there's different tools that are being used. But there was some disdain on both sides. And then I moved kind of back into impact investing and then stepped even further out when I pivoted towards mainstream finance to say, okay, I've learned all this about impact investing through my own portfolio and how to set what, you know, the priorities in, in, in my approach and then in my teaching. And then again, I find that moving into the rest of the world where impact is just a word. Yeah, I'm an impact investor. I create jobs. So I'm an impact investor you know, I create negative impact. You're like, whoa, okay, well, let's calibrate a bit here. The point is that I feel like that's where we need to be focusing. I mean, yes, we've hit this one trillion mark. Thank you, Jin. But there's so many other trillions that need to start moving towards just responsible finance, just removing harm, let alone getting an understanding of what impact is. So why is it in our circles? We have people saying, we can't do that climate innovation project because there's not enough diversity. So we're just going to let that project fail instead of working with them to get that alignment and then intersectionality between gender and climate or what have you. Or somebody who's like, well, I'm adamantly an animal rights lover, therefore I cannot support this project. And so when these frictions happen between people in the same values-based space, or my tool is grant and mine is debt or equity, therefore I won't work with you or your return expectation is this. There's these false challenges that come to light that you're like, wait a second, let's figure out what unites us, where we have these commonalities and common denominators and figure out where the synergies are and work together towards an end goal instead of poo-pooing the other's intentionality, vision, or tool set. 
Wow, that's so beautifully said. I've seen that, but I've never heard it articulated like that before. Was it the poo-poo part that I uh, yes, used? That yes. Was yeah, I mean, I'm definitely into the composting moment of the poo-pooing for sure. What do you think the origin and the source of that disdain is? Why is it that, for lack of a better term, that the impact space has a sense of a little bit of tribalism going on that actually creates this kind of tension like this? Is it a reflection of who we are as people, certain insecurities, vulnerabilities, or is it, are we any better than traditional finance, which also is ridiculously tribal at times as well? So, is it we're just wearing a nice pretty mask that makes us all feel good, but yet inside, we're still these hard asses that just want to jockey for position and only have our positions reflected. You're asking very delicate questions because at the end of the day, we all know that we are, our human nature will always drive us. And there is that tribalism and this, I'm going to create meaning for myself by demeaning you. It's just this natural zero sum game approach to things that somehow, you know, I think about Hans Rusling who has his, you know, we all want to put into buckets and binaries and blacks and whites and, and good and bad. And it becomes you know, such a self goal for the impact community when we start competing with each other and saying, well, you're intentional, but you're not measuring, or your measurement system is not as good as ours, or your grant is not going to go as far as our investment capital. So I see these, these frictions that crop up all the time and I'm, and it's very disappointing. And I do think it is human nature. It is that tribalism. It is the I create my self-definition is based on how I differentiate from you, the us versus them model. And part of that is competition, which just, of course, makes us more transparent and makes us evolve. And we need that. The problem is when it undermines the actual movement itself. But when it comes to, I've been discussing this a lot, like the philanthropy versus impact investors. And I did something with a couple of philanthropy circles that I'm involved in to say, Let's explore where our inhibitions come from. Whether If you're an impact investor, why you're not doing philanthropy? And if you're a philanthropist, why you're not doing impact investing? And to do that well, to have that an honest conversation, I needed to go through my own story. So I went back into my own experience of what I associated with philanthropy because I am well known in the impact investing circles. And even if I've been in venture philanthropy, I was still the you know, yes, maybe impact first, but I was always the investor. And I was asking myself, what about my philanthropy? What about my grant giving? It's not very professional. It's quite spontaneous. It's quite sporadic. Um, I fall in love with the projects. I'm like this, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do a donation to, and, 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 but it's not been anything nearly as professional or structured or thoughtful as my investments. So I looked into my childhood And I was thinking about a really interesting dichotomy between how my father, who was and is, you know, wealthy, lived, you know, enjoyable life. He liked the good living and he did, you know, investments and he took me on really nice holidays. And I had this association of the power of capital for investment. And my mother, who was much more frugal, responsible. They divorced when I was 10. He moved to Sweden, back to the forest land. And my mother stayed in the US, which is why I have this accent, by the way, it's a Connecticut accent. But she taught us very early to be like more responsible with our money. She educated herself as a therapist, a psychotherapist, became a social worker. And 
at the end of each year, she'd say, okay, now my sister and I, let's choose a couple of NGOs and I want you guys to make a charitable donation. And we would choose something that was important to us at that time, whether it was, you know, animals or other children. And and we'd sign our little checks and she taught us that this is really important. But I recognized that I had this association of that philanthropy came from a place of when you were disempowered. And that was this really unfortunate concept that you write a check and you're like, you're kind of an ATM and you don't know where the money goes. You don't know who it really helps. It's just very vague and obscure. And my mother who didn't have much money was doing this. And my father who perhaps wasn't much of a philanthropist, but was, was investing. And I associated that again with this, this sense of, I add value, I'm empowered. And I think that created for me, at least a glitch in recognizing how important grant giving is and how beautifully they work together. So by going through my own story and saying, I'm owning my preconceptions or notions about philanthropy versus investment and saying, I don't want to be an ATM. I want to be a engaged value driven investor and, and helping other people to explore with them. What is your problem with investment? Why do you think that's such a bad thing? And the arguments that I hear back is one, it's cannibalizing philanthropy. If you go to a family office and you teach them about impact investing, they'll stop doing their philanthropy. And I'm sure that's happened because people get excited about the new big thing. That's not the concept of impact investment. You want their endowments to be doing impact investing instead of the traditional stuff and the philanthropy to stay and hopefully grow. But they claim cannibalization. And again, that's certainly not the purpose of introducing impact investing. The second is, well, all impact investors are looking for market rate returns, which we know is going to have a trade-off. Well, then you have to explain that there's impact investors across the spectrum of return expectations and that that's not necessarily the case. And then the third argument you get is that, oh, it's all greenwashing anyway. Everybody knows an impact investor is just is just you know painting on that that little face mask of of pretending like they're doing good and and then you have to show people portfolios and introduce them to you know fantastic people who built an entire portfolio across asset classes with an impact narrative and measurements that follow a story from their grants a total portfolio approach from grants all the way to their you know their mutual funds that have the same story. And once they see that, I think they start unwinding this investments are bad and destructive and that you can begin to unlock the potential of where a grant can provide that catalytic capital for the impact investment to go and then to grow and scale something. And that's the magic. And we have to keep our eye on that prize in order to bring all these different people to the table and blended capital becomes such an important concept. Are you practicing that in your own portfolio, for instance, that blended capital approach where you will invest in a portfolio company, equity or debt with a traditional investment, and then also do a grant to that same company to fill the capital stack at a different level? Not often, not often that I would be the two hats at the same project. But what I do do is where I do a grant or an impact investor, I'm at the table with somebody who's doing a different tool. It's not often that my grant will go at the same project as the impact investing. And that's probably only because I've only begun exploring my shortcomings in this exact area. And I think I will get there. Certainly in the microfinance space, you know that there's part of it that's going to be 
you know, technical assistance and the other part is going to be the more business side. So it's happening behind the scenes, that disbursement across two different parts of the business. And there are some NGOs that I do do grants to that I've also provided investment capital for a side project. For example, there's an organization called Friendship, which works in Bangladesh. And it's a beautiful NGO, does a lot of remarkable work. And they've just started a mangrove fund, which you know is a new movement into venture philanthropy. And I've invested in that. So it's not the exact same project, but it goes to the same organization with the same beneficiaries. And that's probably my closest time where I can say, oh, here's one entity that I'm providing different types of capital to for the support that that particular organization needs. We've touched on the folks within the impact space. I think you did just a wonderful job of breaking out and providing color around how and what you're seeing in the impact space. I think it's a function of you not only being reflective, but also in the space for a long period of time. I mean, with Tonic, you know, since its beginnings or at least, you know, its early chapters. So we've seen Tonic grow extensively in many different ways. It's a much different organization today than it was then. And that's just a function of learning how to grow up and seeing the world and seeing what sticks. But what we haven't and which I know you have insights into as well, is when you move beyond the impact space, when you're not necessarily talking to the impact tribe and you're trying to mainstream this, what are you seeing up there? And then like, I mean, what kind of impact is that having on you as a result of trying to make this bridge happen? Hmm. You know, when you look at something on paper and you're like, this makes sense. (laughs) No, that never happens to me. (laughs) (laughs) things that look on the paper like i can do this yeah (laughs) and inflated sense of self i think when you uh, map out and it's just like building a business you know when you're an entrepreneur and you're designing something and you're like all right i got the business plan i know how i'm going to bring this to market and then of course the second hits the market it completely pivots and blows up in your face and that was a common theme like i said from my humble journey into impact is a lot of those situations I think it looked so good on paper. I was like, okay, I got the impact thing. I figured it out. I know what it means. I know how this works. I've spent like a decade doing my own portfolio, talking about it, teaching it. All right, now my product, you know, the impact uh, field building is going to hit the market. I'm going to go to the big boys. And it, literally, they certainly are. It sounded great. And I have to say, the reception was excellent. I would do a lot of advocacy. I'd speak at these huge conferences with thousands of people business, finance, everything, monochrome, monochrome mail, received me well because I came in with the business case. Here's a business case of impact. Here's a business case of diversity. Here's a business case of climate action. That that goes over very well in the MBA courses I teach, in the independent board directorship sustainability courses I teach, in these like large finance conferences. And then you slip into these ivory towers of board positions. And that's an interesting place because I'm generally one of the few people under 60 and certainly one of the only women. And you get in there because you had a business case. You had an economic and rational argument about why the shift had to happen. What I didn't count on is that I know inherently, and I'm sure I've heard that in the other interviews and you recognize yourself that 
and I think I've heard you speak about that, that the moral imperative has to come through. Otherwise, nothing will change. Nothing will stick. You can open a book and say, oh, I see. This is the business case for impact. But to actually make a change or to implement it, there needs to be some type of human connection to the topic, some type of real personal commitment, which goes to the topic that you also discuss with a lot of people. What is your personal spiritual path here? But you have to create that in the macro of a large financial institution or a company as well. So going back to a very pertinent question is like, how is that affecting me? Well, I have to say that I thought I could do it better. I thought it wouldn't tear at me so much, but business cases and economic cases and practical tools and methodologies and processes does tear at your sense of urgency for the, again, the moral imperative that has to be there. So it's been humbling because sometimes it kind of comes back and ricochets pretty hard and it's been a little bit demoralizing at times. And then I have to remind myself patience. I know that's not my normal go-to, but I have to be patient and an incremental change in this space will mean so much. But I get so disappointed with myself, with yeah, first and foremost myself, then with humanity, and then with <laughs> the, the universe in its entirety, because I'm like, why? This makes such good sense. This is so obvious. This is so critical. It's so urgent. Why do I have to explain the business case? So it's been it's been tiring, Gino. I think I've made headway. I think I've really pushed some interesting developments in traditional finance spaces and in organizations that have just begun their journey. And I'm trying not to concentrate too much on the shortcomings or the gaps or the long distance I have to go or the very few organizations that I've actually been able to help because I know there's so many other people out there. Does that make sense? Oh, for sure. So I want to say something about my own journey in relationship to the moral imperative. And then I also want to know, before I forget the question, what have you discovered that usually helps people feel the viscerality around a particular issue, essentially, you know, so that they can actually start getting into the moral imperative as opposed to it being just a heady white paper construct. Because that's essentially, when I look at what I do, when I look at developing or creating urban villages, for instance, within workforce housing, that's a function of me actually feeling ridiculously alone the bulk of my life. And me needing an outer world project to actually help others with the belief that I think other people are struggling with aloneness and connection and human connection as well. And now the best parts of my life have always been when I've been in some, have really had readily access or ready to access to other people who are concerned about my wellness. It doesn't have to be family members per se. It's just wherever I've lived in place, can I go next door and the person would know enough about me that they would feel comfortable just leaving their door open for me to go in and get something kind of thing. And then I've always felt at home with that feeling, and yet I've always struggled to find it. And for me, the Western world and the way that, that we've designed life today has actually created a very alienating experiences as a sentient being on earth for a variety of reasons and not to get into here. So that's one. The other one is, is I became a father four years ago, and I live out west uh, near Lake Tahoe, which is a beautiful, big alpine lake in California. I live on the Nevada side. And we have wildfires out here. And they're crazy wildfires. And probably to people who aren't out west, they must seem apocalyptic when you see these images. 
And my four-year-old, however, the past couple of years during the summer season, fire season, has sometimes not been able to go outside. And I've been reading white papers and all the scientific stuff on climate. And yes, I've been dabbling it on a little bit on my own account, but nothing hit like watching my kid's face pressed up against a glass, not being able to go outside. Because I asked like, what is wealth worth if you're just living in a bubble and that you can't even access your outside world? And it really got me thinking like that's when all of a sudden I pivoted and that was the impulse. It wasn't the science, it wasn't the degrees, it wasn't the story of some country flooding and across that I've never been to. While I can understand those as a construct, as a cognitive construct and can understand the argument, it's not enough to move me out of my lifestyle or my behavior and influence it. It was only when I was able to experience it viscerally that I pivoted and leveraged climate now as something I'm very interested in getting other people interested in as well and just a much higher level of commitment. So with that, that's just me personally. You're talking to some very influential people on a regular basis. Where's that sweet moment for them? Is it similar? Is it similar kind of like it's only when it just sort of bites you in the ass and you're a little suffering, creates a lot of motivation? I mean, sadly, it could be said that, I mean, a little suffering does go a long way in terms of creating motivation, whereas a white paper, like, that's eh, interesting. And I could sip tea and have coffee and read books around it and do chat groups around it, but I don't have to really do anything because the marrow and my cellular structure is just not like, it doesn't have to. Your story is, is beautiful on two fronts for me. One, because it's, speaking of being lonely, I think everybody has that. And, and I certainly know that when people ask me, like, why did you go, why is diversity and inclusion and social justice so important to you? And I will get back to your question, but I'm just reflecting for me that I, you know, I grew up as an immigrant in the U S and always feeling a little bit different and on the outside. And my parents had accents and I know that's not supposed to be a unusual in the U S but I wanted everything to look and sound like what I saw on television and how sensitive I was to feeling different, to being unusual and wanting to be like everybody else. And that sensitivity from my childhood of feeling like an outsider, which continued in all the 10 countries I've lived in and trying to learn the language and to fit in. And, you know, I'm six foot blonde. Like I look pretty standard Scandinavian. You put me in India or Japan and I, you know, I can't say that I, I necessarily melted in very easily. So, but I'm always the first to see, and I have a very strong empathy empathic side. So I can feel when somebody is not at ease and I'm very sensitive to it, very sensitive to any type of exclusion for any reason. And that drives my investment strategies today. Like I've taken something very raw and personal from my childhood and I've built it into my investment strategy, which I'm sure a lot of people have. You shared your story, you know, watching your children and you've made that self-discovery and saying, okay, well, I'm going to build that into my professional engagement. Not a lot of people have that option. They can't connect that. This is what I'm struggling with in my family, in my neighborhood, with loved ones. Connecting that to their work, it's not a very simple path. It's beautiful when it happens, when somebody just sees, wait a second, I care about health or women or children, education, 
and I can actually influence that through my work or investment, that's a very powerful moment if you can create that synergy. Few people can because they're working in organizations that are not theirs. They're not independent. It's not their money. There's absolutely no overlap between the issues that are important to them and what they're doing. And because we're trained from day one to compartmentalize our work, our finance, and our home lives. And this dissonance that we live with every single day And I remember saying this to a big group of German finance guys at a conference. I was like, it was all men in suits. And I was like, I'm sure you're all wonderful fathers and lovely neighbors and wonderful husbands. And the second you get to the office, you hang up your coat and your hat, if you have one, and your values. And you just become this ruthless manager and, you know, investing to profit maximize at the cost of anybody who's on the other side of the equation. And I try to lament and feel for them to say, it must be so awful to have to hang up your values with your coat and then go home and be back into this, your full self and be the human being that you are meant to be. So I think people are living in a, in a small kind of torture of not being able to reconcile their values with their work and their investment activities. And it's a gift to give them that opportunity. So, I mean, I convince myself that certainly when I stand up and say, you can do this, you can invest with your values, you can work with harm reduction approach, and then even contribute to solutions. So what works, you know, is helping them find that story, helping them find the, do you remember when your kids were locked inside with their faces against the glass and weren't able to go out because of COVID, because of the fires or somebody whose mother died of an orphan disease that probably could have been dealt with, or somebody who has mental health issues in their close circle of friends. And I'm like, do you know that these things that you're really passionate about? I mean, it could be a kite surfer. I'm like, oh, you love kite surfing. Isn't it a shame about all the plastic in the water? Oh yeah, that just upsets me so much. Boom, you found this path that says, hey, you know what? It's not just that you can donate to organizations that are working on that. You can actually invest in innovations working on that. You can get them excited about it. So what happens is I walk into a boardroom or a like an advisory structure on the business case, on that white paper that we sit around and drink tea and discuss <laughs> the merits. That brings me in the door, but then it's a one-on-one conversation, you know, when we're having coffee afterwards that somebody says, you know, what's important. It's this. And that's when I'm like, oh, I know somebody who's invested the most magnificent project in exactly that space. And that's where it catches and that's where it goes. But that doesn't happen easily. And it doesn't happen without a lot of personal and, you know, one-on-one engagement which comes at a cost. Going back to your original question, what's the cost? Um, Yeah. Heather, we've covered so much and I find what you've shared about that, whether it's you and your impact journey or whether it's you in relationship to the impact space, trying to go upstream. Wow. You have really thought about this. So, so many people are going to benefit by hearing this, especially I'm old to the space and I felt like I was listening to someone who's like, yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that. I've seen that. So that said, I know that there's times when somebody has been thinking about a lot of different things, it doesn't all come out. So was there something that either you were processing either beforehand or as a part of this conversation that, that was just kind of left un- unexpressed that you would like to share now before we close it out? I think the only other big topic that I'm grappling with personally, and I hear and see in the impact space is 
how much of this kind of deep inner work, because you're right, I spend a lot of time reflecting on who I am and what drives me and the space and human dynamics and human psychology and behaviors to make this work. And one of the questions that I keep asking myself and others is how much is that self-work a prerequisite to do impact, to actually go deeper and further? How deep do you have to go? And that's my, you know, maybe we'll save that for another interview about what I think is the different pathways there and the different ways that I've heard other people getting there. But I'll share just one little thing from a, I was at a Synergos gathering last week and some people, you know, use psychedelics to evolve their thinking. Some people do it through intense meditation, but there was one woman that came and played ancient instruments. Yeah. Her name is Laura. She's some, an organization called Meta Music. And this is just still resonating in me. And I just want to share this. You can look her up, Meta Music, and she plays ancient instruments and chants. And she had us all close our eyes and play these instruments. And the memories and the expression of incredibly deep emotions that come out when you listen to her. And on her website, she actually has these little clips. I recommend to anybody, go and listen. You don't have to use psychedelics. You don't have to go through deep meditation. It could be music. It could be dance. It can be yoga. I met a gentleman who is passionate about fitness. That's his path to kind of spirituality. But I do think there's something we have to do that goes beyond our standard everyday approach to how we're living because we have boxes on our heads and we're just walking around and doing the same thing. So that I just wanted to share that, that that music was really enlightening for me. For the listeners, what was the name of that? I have Meta Music. Was that the name of it? Yeah. And I have our website. I was just listening to some of the music right before our call. So lauraincera.com and Meta Music. And she's got a beautiful webpage. She's in California, by the way. She's oh, okay. Silly. She's a neighbor. She's in California. <laughs> And she does these beautiful retreats. And like I said, just listen to the music and see if it works for you. Oh, I'm definitely going to check it out. So I play the harmonium. So I actually know the value of that vibration. And so, and gosh, I'm trying to think of the musician I listen to who goes around the world and collects oldest instruments in the world and plays them. It's just stunning. I listen to him often at night because I find it just so calming. Gosh, I'm spacing. I'm embarrassed because I brought it up and I should be able to share what his name is, but it's incredible. What's that? It'll come up and anybody who's interested will probably Google or you can post it around alongside. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to put it in the show notes. Yeah. Put it in the show notes. (laughs) I'll put it in the show notes. No, but I have to say that if you close your eyes and you let those vibrations go through, I had an experience where tears just started running down my face at some point. I don't know why. And then I had a moment of euphoria. So just that's my like little really personal share. And if you enjoy these, and you can actually have, you have the skills in this domain, I think you're going to really enjoy it. Yeah, for sure. Before we uh, sign off, where can people find out a little bit more about you and the kind of work you're doing in the world? Oh, yeah. So I have a lovely field building organization called Time with two eyes, very unique in our space, but the double I stands for the impact imperative. So time.org And there we, you know, post our blogs and our thought pieces and our speaking engagements and advocacy. Certainly, I mean, LinkedIn is a place, it's a channel where 
I make a lot of noise because that's where I get access to mainstream, just to bang on pots and pans about different impact issues. That's famously how I, I consider my work. Yeah, and those are two places that I think it's easy to find me. And I love hearing from people. I sit and chat with pretty much anybody, anywhere who has a question or a thought. And I love that just as a part of my own evolution. Sounds great. Thanks so much for those who are listening to us. We'll put all that stuff in the show notes. Hattie shared so much. Just, I, I'm going to sit with a lot of this and uh, it's going to take me time to process this. But thanks again so much for joining us today. Thanks, Gina, for the opportunity. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening in to today's conversation on the poetry of impact. The podcast exists for and because of listeners like you. Be sure to subscribe to the Poetry of Impact podcast on your favorite podcast player. And if you have time, leave us a review. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast. For show notes and additional resources, visit poetryofimpact.com.